Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am, and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website. That's www.3cr.org.au and Freedom of Species podcast website, www.freedomofspecies.org, and all previous podcasts are available by iTunes. So, yeah, today we've got, we're going to take on a few uh, controversial issues within the animal movement, a couple of uh, spicy meatballs, uh, spicy <laughs> vegan meatballs. And so we're going to have a talk on human population and how that impacts other animals. And we're also going to have a talk uh, by a veterinarian, Dr. Andrew Knight, or Professor Andy, Andrew Knight now. Um, so we're going to play both those talks. And we actually do have the yeah the person speaking on the population tour. I should mention as well, we've got Adam Cardellini providing some technical assistance as well, <laughs> and maybe some special commentary on the show too. Uh, thanks to Adam for helping me through the through the desk this first time. And who are you? And I am Nick Pendergrass. <laughs> yeah, yep, uh, first time behind the desk. And so we're going to play uh, a talk by Katie Batty, who is here with us as well. So Katie Batty is a social justice lawyer and longtime animal rights activist. In her spare time, she volunteers as a lawyer for refugees and co-hosts a political podcast, Progressive Podcast Australia. So, yeah, I think we'll get into Katie's talk fairly soon. Again, it's called How Human Overpopulation Impacts Other Animals and What You Can Do About It. So maybe to start things off, do you want to talk a little bit, Katie, about how you came to this topic and, yeah, your thoughts on the topic generally before we get into the talk? Sure, yeah. I guess just full uh, disclaimer, Nick and I have been long-term partners as well and I think it was actually an article, you'd written an article about the voluntary human extinction movement and talking about population. I think that I'd heard of it maybe from Propagandy, the vegan political progressive band. They had... I think they they had that that was a tagline soundtrack to the voluntary human extinction movement. So, I touch on on that, but I just think it's quite it's quite a controversial issue in the vegan scene, and I wanted to kind of bring a uh, a different take to it and hopefully sell it like talk about it in a way that wasn't going to get people all angry and fired up. <laughs> okay, so here is a talk, and this is from the most recent Institute for Critical Animal Studies conference. I wanted to say, like, you know, human overpopulation is not the only factor that is, um, impacts other animals from humans. There's issues with the way that we travel and consumption and all these other issues coming through it. I'm just going to be talking about this, this issue today. Um, and it's about thinking what can we do in our lives to help others and do the least harm in regards to the, the human overpopulation. So I'll have time for questions at the end and just want a really nice, respectful discussion. So we're really going to actually like, talk to each other and listen to each other. I feel like a lot of time um, with this issue, people just like, yell at each other and don't actually listen to each other. So um, 
just kind of have an open mind, but I just want to kind of present some of the facts, then have a talk about what, what do we think is an ethical thing to do. All right, so first a bit of a history lesson. So humans were living in harmony with, with nature pretty well up until um, the Neolithic Revolution, and we moved from being nomadic hunters um, and hunter-gatherer types to creating agriculture. And so we actually started to run animals into extinction, like the mammoth and things like that. And we started to need to control society rather than living in harmony with it. So we, would, we started doing damage at that point, um, that our population was pretty low, so the damage was less. Um, but then the Industrial Revolution happened, and so there was a massive explosion in the population. So we had better food production, medicine, sanitation, people were living longer. So the population really exploded at that point. And this led to obviously a huge pollution in the air, the seas, um, and a really big impact on the animals. And so you can see here, this is the population growth. So this is the Neolithic Revolution. So it was still low, but you know, I'm not saying we're not having damage, we're definitely doing damage around here. And then, yeah, that kind of jump. Um, and that's where the, you know, the, you can see the Industrial Revolution has kicked in. So it was pretty stable throughout history um, until the Industrial Revolution happened and then it massively jumped up and it continues to do so. So why does it matter for the other animals? So we're just one species among millions. We share the planet with millions of species of other animals. And the more humans there are, then the more land we say, you know, it's cleared, but it's basically stolen from the other animals and from the native populations, human populations that live there as well. So 80% of the world's forests have been destroyed. And that's where 70% of the non-human animals live. So we've just destroyed their homes. So in Australia, um, since the European invasion, about 90% of the native vegetation in the east temperate zone has been removed. It's this nice zone, Queensland, like the east coast, basically. 90% of those forests are gone. And 50% um, of our rainforests are gone. And basically, we've reduced all the greenery by more than a third since we took over. And there's just a little map there. So this is the east temperate zone. I was talking about where we've done heaps of clearing. And there, so, and obviously the middle, there's just no forest there, so there's nothing to clear. But wherever you can see red, it's where there was forest, and now, now it's been cleared by humans. Um, so what I'm saying, when we're thinking about um, human population, and we're thinking about what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint? Another factor to take into account is reproductive choices and decisions about how many children we have and if we have children. So it's something that we should take into account. It's just another factor along with our transport, our diets, our holidays, all those kinds of things. There was a study done in 2009 and they looked at what is the, um, what is the, if you have a child, what, what would that add to your carbon footprint? So the study, they, it's really amazing, I recommend that you check it out if you want to see this. I'm not a scientist, but they came up with this formula about the number of ancestors you would reduce. If you had a child now, under current conditions in the US, it's 9,441 metric tonnes of carbon dioxide. So 5.7 times the average um, woman's uh, carbon emissions in the United States, or carbon footprint, is going to be from, from having a kid. So you can see here, um, this is like measuring one metric ton, two metric ton, three metric ton. We've got to jump all the way to 60. This is kind of in a year. If you had one fewer child, you're reducing your emissions by 60, um, 60 tons just for that in that year. And you compare that, they have to be such a big from three, you know, like living car free almost gets you there, plant based diets there, so being vegan, 
or um, <coughs> at least a plant-based diet part, you're vegan beyond just diet. So you can see like it's, it's huge. It has a really big impact. So it's something that we really need to think about when talking about the environment and our impact. Um, so I'm going to play this little clip because I think that uh, it's quite a good interview because the, the commentator is quite stunned by this guy that has this kind of uh, approach that's not anthropocentric. So I just want to play this because he explains it quite well. If you think Greenpeace is radical for spray painting baby harp seals, brace yourself. For the sake of the environment, the voluntary human extinction movement wants to eliminate the human race from the planet. Here to explain the group's founder, Les Knight, he joins us from Portland, Oregon. Les Knight, welcome. Thank you, Tucker. So you want to eliminate the human race. How unhappy was your childhood? Oh, I know a lot of people think that. No, no. It's an obvious conclusion. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to be, want people to become extinct? Well, it's either us or millions of other species going extinct. You know, before we go too far, I, I should explain that this is through voluntarily not breeding. We're not right. advocating... You're not calling for genocide. No, or any kind of increase in death. We're in calling for a decrease in death, actually. Okay, but you're calling for people to go away. I guess the obvious answer is, what if we prefer our species to those other species, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... Mm -hmm. Isn't it fair for human beings to want to perpetuate their own species? Well, it would be fair if that's all we did, and if we let the others also survive and uh, exist, if we could peacefully coexist. But ever since we became Homo sapiens, we haven't been able to do that. What do you mean? I mean, there are many species of plant and animal that are thriving. We still haven't got to them yet. We're working on it, though. <laughs> What, what, no, I mean, but that, that's literally true. I mean, there are all sorts of, you know, insects and algae. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, there's, a, there's a, a lot of living things on this earth, and a lot of them are doing quite well. They are, yes, especially the ones that can uh, adapt to our civilizations, like pigeons and rats. But there are many species which have gone extinct due to our increase. There are so many of us. Wherever we live, not much else lives. So what's the point of saving the earth if there would be no people around to enjoy it? Well, I know that's a question a lot of people ask, and it's obvious that they're not thinking about all the other species. I mean, that we are just one of 10 million. Who knows how many? We've only cataloged 2 million. And to think that we, the entire planet, is just for us is um, rather human-centered. Of course it's human-centered. We're humans. <laughs> now, you uh, apparently, I was reading that there are parents in this group. Sure. What, uh, what do their children say? I mean, what do you say to your kids? Yes, I've joined a group that is opposed to you? <laughs> no, no, we're not opposed to existing children. In fact, that's a large part of it. We're not taking care of the children that are already here. How can we, in good conscience, create more children when so many are dying of preventable causes? No, but wait, wait a second. I mean, what do you mean you're not against children? If I'm, you know, if I hire an exterminator to kill the rats in my basement, <laughs> I'm against rats. You're against having more children come into the world, so you're anti-children. I mean, how, you know, how are you not? No, no, we're pro-children. Once the child is here, what we're against is conception. That is so wildly anti-human. I mean, don't you see beauty in the creation of a human life? Well, I see beauty in the creation of almost all lives. There's a trade-off here. The more of us, the fewer of them. I mean, baby humans are cute, but so are baby pandas. I don't know. How about baby maggots? Are they as cute as a baby child? They may not be as cute, but you know, their existence is far more essential to the Earth's biosphere than Homo sapiens. Okay, so you, you see a moral equivalence between the birth of a maggot baby and the birth of a human baby. <laughs> well, that, that's twisting it a bit. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to elicit what you think. When you think of the biosphere as a whole and 
how ecosystems interact with each other. When an exotic in invader comes in, as we are, and starts disrupting the other species, you causing an exotic, an are you a Scientologist? What do you mean an invader? We, we, I mean, we're not invaders. We, we're from here. Well, we've only been on North American continent about 20,000 years, which is pretty recent. Each time a Homo sapiens move into a continent, a spasm of extinctions occur, and we are continuing it today. Mm. If you don't mind my asking, who'd you vote for in the last election? You know, I can't remember. Somebody asked me that the other day. It didn't seem that important. Yeah. Uh, are, are you, what are your politics generally? I'm an anarchist. <laughs> but, that, you know, the full range of political thought exists within the movement. Huh. Interesting. And there are children in the movement, too? Yes. Uh, I, you know, I think the youngest is about 10. There aren't really very many. But a lot of people who are in the movement think, have said that they thought of this when they were 6 or 7. You know, it's, it's not a really complicated thing to realize that Earth's biosphere is being disrupted by one species, and that one species right. is us. I will say, that is the sickest thing I think I've ever heard, but you were one of the cheeriest guests we've ever had. I don't know how, to, I don't know, I don't know how the two fit together, but I appreciate your coming on last night. <laughs> Thank you, Tucker. Thanks. <laughs> so that's, it's pretty funny, and I think um, for us, the people that care about animals, um, we, we can't really relate to that guy who's so human-centered and just really like, what's the point of having the world if humans aren't going to enjoy it and things like that. Um, but I was just playing that because I think he just makes a really important point about we're just one of millions of species and it's about saving lives. Um, now, people are going to say, oh, you're one of those anti-natalists. Um, so you might have heard this word kind of thrown around in the movement. So um, I'm not an anti-natalist. An anti-natalist is someone that's opposed to bringing any new people into the world, basically, saying that birth in itself is a harm and a wrong because they can... Um, basically that they, can, they can't consent to it and that they'll experience suffering. So it's a philosophy. What I'm more talking about is let's kind of have a think about what's the most ethical thing to do in regards to our choices about bringing children to the world. Um, so some of the criticisms that anti-natalists get is that even with suffering, that life is joyous. Um, male anti-natalists shouldn't tell women what to do with their bodies and some of these people are just assholes. And yes, some of them are. And I've left some online groups because I've seen some ableism and some sexism. Um, ableism particularly towards children born with disabilities, which is really disgusting. So there are definitely some um, bad apples out there. I guess it's... Um, I don't really think that you need to make a decision about are you an anti-natalist, are you into voluntary human extinction movement. We're just going to think about what's the human impact and what should we do about it today. Um, I think that... Um, even if you disagree with the philosophical, philosophical stance, on the flip side, if they're not reproducing, they're still, you know, it's still helping the planet because it's going to bring the human population down. Um, so the voluntary human extinction movement, on the other hand, is a movement that advocates for humans to voluntarily stop reproducing to save the other animals. Um, and a lot of people in the movement are also vegans. So volunteers of the movement think it would be ideal if we died out, whereas supporters think they don't agree with that, but at least for now we should stop having so many kids. So I don't really think it matters whether you support extinction or not because it's highly unlikely humans are going to voluntarily stop reproducing. Um, and the same with the antinatalism. I guess, you know, you could take that philosophical point of view. Um, for me, the key issue and what I want to kind of get across to people is what's the ethical choice for you to make in your own situation? So what are some unethical ways to deal with overpopulation? So obviously we're going to be ruling out any of these. Killing or mass genocide. 
biological weapons that would prevent breeding, forced sterilisation and abortion, which happens in countries like China with one-child policy, terrible outcomes um, for people there. Um, important one, I think, is not pressuring pregnant women into an abortion. If you're already pregnant, it's your decision. Um, and it would be, I think, really wrong if men would come along and say to pregnant women, no, get rid of your baby. And I feel like um, women get unfairly targeted sometimes because they're more visibly reproducing. They're the ones with the children, kind of the same way that Muslim women wear hijabs and they're more targeted. And I feel like um, a big part of the movement is also about men taking responsibility and getting vasectomies and things like that and not being like, I don't want to wear a condom and that kind of shit. So... <laughs> So it's all about the future choices. So it's not about your, the children that are already here. It's not about um, if you've got pregnant and you decide to continue with the pregnancy, that's your choice. It's about what are we going to do in the future choices. So what can we do? So if you're part of that tiny percentage of the world's population, the world's history, like a minuscule amount of people, that we are so lucky that we can choose whether we reproduce or not. Like, that is amazing. And it's phenomenal for women to have that, that power to do so. So in Australia, where we have pretty good access to abortion and contraception, um, it's not universal, like even on Medicare, you still have to pay quite a few hundred dollars for an abortion, but we've got pretty good access. What is the most ethical option? Should you have one child? Should you have no child? Should you think about fostering or adopting a child? Um, so in Australia, we have a massive shortage of um, carers for fostering and um, permanent care is what they call adoption in Victoria where they're past six months of age, basically adoption for older kids. There's a massive shortage. It's Australia-wide, it's in Victoria as well. We really need people. So there's 20,000 kids that need permanent homes. And in 2015, we had over 300,000 babies born. So only 6% of those new parents need to switch to fostering or adopting a kid, and there would be no kids living in state care. So it's a really small amount. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's easy, fostering or adopting, and there are problems in the system and we need to encourage more people to adopt and make it easier. So what they're doing in New South Wales, they're going to give up to $37,000 to adoptive parents, uh, and that's the maximum amount you get if you adopt a child with a disability, because everyone wants babies, and they want babies with no trauma or disability issues or anything like that. So the best thing you can do, really, if you're one of those amazing people that can take on that challenge of, of being a parent, adopting one of those child that, that no one wants, the child with a disability or the older child, child with traumatic backgrounds, is the most amazing thing you can do. And yes, it should, they should get more help, and we should push for that, and it's good to see New South Wales is kind of taking the lead with that at the moment. Um, I'm sure you're kind of familiar with this idea as animal activists about we should adopt, not breed. Um, a lot of people don't like the term breed being applied to humans because they feel like they're kind of being brought down to this animal level, and we say animals breed, but humans we don't because we're kind of above that. Um, so, I mean, you could just say reproduce. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with breed because I think that you know, we are animals and I'm happy to use the word, but some people just don't really like it. So in either way, I guess, in the same way that we would say, yeah, adopt a cat or a dog, there's, there's ones out there that need homes now, the same goes with humans. Um, and there is actually something you can do about countries where people don't have a choice. So, and that's most of the world's population, they don't have a choice about it. So promoting women's empowerment and reproductive rights is the most effective way to reduce um, overpopulation in those countries where they don't have access to it. So the more empowered and educated women are, the fewer children they have, and access to, contra to um, contraception and abortion. So like World Vision is the, gets the most donations of any group in Australia, but they're anti-abortion and they're anti some forms of birth control. So this is an area that's really neglected. Most aid groups are religious, they're not going to help with abortion and contraception. 
So there's groups like Women's Global Network for Reproductive Rights that just work on that. Um, I mean, Trump just like, I know he cut a bunch of funding for those kinds of things and aid programs as well. And John Howard did the same thing. So that's a really important one if you're going to think about how you can help in those other, other countries. <clears throat> so um, I have a bunch of the, the resources here that I'm happy to email and share with people. Also, the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement website, they've got a great list of FAQs. The website's been around since like 1996 and I just think it's a great kind of place to start, just to have a read through it and have a think about those ideas. Um, just oh yeah, 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 sure, and I, I can email this as well. Okay. We'll also put this up online, this PowerPoint, okay. the website should give it a sec, so. Okay, I'll try it. Yeah. Um, Alright, and so I'm going to open up for questions now, and just want to mention that, yeah, I do this political podcast um, with my partner Nick, who's here, and we did a couple of episodes, um, recent episodes 166 and 167, on this topic, so you can um, have listened to that. We interviewed a woman who's been sterilised at the age of 26, 26? I think so. Yeah, and kind of the backlash that she got trying to convince a doctor she doesn't want to have kids, can she be sterilised? Um, and the way it was quite interesting that they kept talking to her male partner the whole time. What do you think about this? What do you think? And, and like, not talking to her at all about it. So um, I think that's, yeah, I did a couple of um, interviews with Ruth Bear from the UK, and you're also welcome to to email me because you know it might be a bit confronting to have a chat just out here and you might just want to have an email chat. Um, so yeah, I'll just open it up to questions. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. So you mentioned questions at the end. That, that talk is up on archive.org if you'd like to have listened to those talks. And also, yeah, you can contact Katie uh, via progressivepodcastaustralia.com and find those, um, yeah, those episodes she mentioned. And also, yeah, we've just shared the PowerPoint on our social media pages there as well. And finally, if you want to find out more about ICAS, which that was from the ICAS conference, you can go to criticalanimalstudies.org. So we're going to go to Andrew Knight's talk on vegan dogs and cats in a second, vegan companion animals. But I thought just briefly, uh, Katie, do you want to touch on any thoughts you've had uh, on the issue since you've given the talk or any updates? Sure, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I briefly talk about we need to pay foster carers more money, give them more support. And in Victoria and in Queensland, they are trialling professional foster carers. So they basically that's your job. You're paid 65 grand a year, a lot of support and days off. Um, and people being paid extra money if they take people with disabilities and given more support. So I think that's really positive. And there are so many children in the foster care system across Australia that really need to be taken in. Adoption of getting babies is difficult, but there are lots of kids out there that do need to be helped. Yeah. And another thing that came up was one of the questions about the your point about the Industrial Revolution, was it? Or agriculture oh, that's might right. worth yeah. raising? Yeah. So uh, I guess I was basing it on some research that said that 
humans lived in harmony with other animals until the Industrial Revolution and until we moved from nomads to agriculture. But the research that's come out since then, or other new research I found out, especially the book Sapiens, talks about no, we were actually pretty destructive from the start. And I think actually just listening back to it, Les Knight in that clip we played with the Fox News interview, he says as soon as we became homo sapiens, mm. we became destructive. So it wasn't just, you know, recent. It was quite a long time ago that we have been destructive on the planet. Yeah, I definitely recommend that book, Sapiens. And yeah, it does make that point since about maybe 40, 50,000 years ago. We've, you know, up until that point, we lived pretty much like other species. But actually, from that point onwards, there's been a mass extinction of particularly megafauna, like larger animals. And that's obviously continued. And that's not to say things like the agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, which often people point to as a point, didn't definitely speed things up. But yeah, it has been definitely a, a long running issue. So we're going to go to a talk now by Professor Andrew Knight, and this was recorded at the Animal Activist Forum. So Andrew Knight is Professor of Animal Welfare and Ethics and Director of the Centre for Animal Welfare at the University of Winchester, a European and RCVS veterinary specialist in animal welfare science, ethics and law, and so many other things. He's got so many titles, a very well-regarded vet. He has over 65 academic, pan uh, academic publications and a series of YouTube videos on animal issues and he's going to be talking about vegan companion animals which is an issue he has done a lot of research on and you're listening to freedom of species on 855 am 3cr okay so this one is on vegetarian versus meat-based diets and when i say vegetarian really what i mean is vegan most of the time so i'd like to start this talk with um oh, by the way this is a topic of interest of mine and i spent quite a lot of time researching uh, the evidence about, and I'll, I'll cover that with you as well shortly. I'd like to start off with the story of Little Tyke, uh, the most famous vegetarian lioness. And Little Tyke was raised uh, as an orphan vegetarian lioness on a sanctuary in California in the 1950s with a deer, a lamb and a swan, uh, all of who became her firm friends. And she wasn't raised uh, to pursue uh, zebras, news, gazelles, impalas and giraffes, and didn't think of other animals as being food. Um, now, accordingly, she was fed on a double handful of cooked grains that were chosen for their high protein content, their calcium fats and roughage, half a gallon of milk, she wasn't uh, vegan, two eggs, and to safeguard the health of her teeth, she wasn't gnawing on bones, uh, they would give her uh, rubber gumboots with her favourite perfume sprinkled on, and one gumboot would last for around about a month. So um, this was what she was fed on, but meanwhile the, the Westbos who were raising her, Georges and Margaret, were being told by their veterinarian that you know, little type desperately needed meat and she would become very ill if uh, she wasn't fed any meat because she was a carnivore. So back in the 1950s they posted a $1,000 reward to anyone who get little type to eat some meat. And many tried to claim the reward, but nobody was ever successful. She would refuse all attempts to get her to eat meat. She didn't associate it with food. By the age of four, she was fully grown. She was 10 foot four inches or three meters long. She weighed uh, 350 pounds, which is 160 kilograms. Um, and she could run at 40 miles or 65 kilometers an hour. One of America's most experienced zoo curators said he was the healthiest specimen that uh, he had ever seen. At that point, they stopped worrying about what the vets were telling them. So this, she obviously wasn't vegan, but uh, I think this story does hopefully encourage us to reconsider some of our uh, assumptions about uh, cats being carnivores and, and what could, can and can't be achieved on alternate diets. What I want to talk about in this presentation is some of the health hazards associated with meat-based uh, diets, uh, biological requirements for animals uh, for any kind of diet, 
And then vegetarian diets, touching on the topic of natural behaviour versus unnatural, are there any health benefits, and is there anything people should know if they're considering a transition to a vegan diet for companion animals, cats and dogs? So firstly, health hazards. Now occasionally there are sort of big health scares that crop up, and the, the, the biggest and the worst was this one. Uh, melamine uh, is um, a plastic ingredient, a flame retardant, and a fertiliser ingredient, um, and it was added into wheat flour uh, being exported from China in an attempt to artificially increase the protein content, or at least so it would look like they were high protein on the test machines. And unfortunately it also causes kidney failure and death. So uh, it resulted in more than 10,000 complaints to the FDA in the US. It's not known how many animals died from it. Uh, more than 200 brands were affected and recalled. Um, and it's thought that thousands of animals probably died, but not, we don't know how many. So occasionally there are dramatic incidences like this. There have been a couple involving um, aflatoxicosis, fungal contaminants of uh, dry kibble stored in warehouses and things as well. Um, but on a much more regular basis, we're faced with these sorts of things. So uh, meat mill and byproducts, so slaughterhouse waste uh, goes into pet food. So this is meat that's considered to be unfit for human consumption. Uh, the tendons, the ligaments, the gristle, maybe hooves, maybe ears, other body parts which are, are not fit for human consumption. They may be diverted into the animal food chain to make a bit more money from, from these products. Animals uh, that arrive at the slaughterhouse are diseased, disabled, uh, dying or dead, the four Ds uh, on arrival, and so can't go into the human food chain. They may also be diverted into the animal food chain. Supermarket rejects because they're past their use-by date, sometimes the styrofoam packaging apparently still attached, may be processed in. Uh, there was a, a study in uh, 1998, I think, showing detectable levels of euthanizing pollution in about 42 brands of uh, dog food in the US because uh, the concern was that somehow or somewhere we've been uh, euthanizing and this was getting into the, the food chain. The levels were extremely low and not thought to be dangerous in any way, but it does demonstrate the potential for hazardous ingredients to be in some of these foods. Now, what about premium brands? Premium brands of pet foods you know, are not going to have these byproducts, uh, which is great. The ingredients should be higher quality, but in this case, it's more of an ethical issue because uh, food animals are being killed directly to feed uh, cats and dogs instead of um, the, the products being a byproduct of killing animals for human consumption. So, the people that are concerned about you know, welfare of animals on, on intensive or extensive farms and ethical issues, there's a bigger problem there. Now, as I say, most of the brands are not premium brands. They include all those sorts of horrible ingredients. And anyone who's got cats and dogs probably knows that they're not dumb. They're, they're smart, smart creatures. And how do we trick them into eating all this, all the disgusting things that go into some of these uh, cans? Well, we do so um, by the addition of digest in particular. Digest is considered to be the um, most powerful palatability enhancer discovered by the pet food industry. Uh, it is partially dissolved uh, chicken, uh, primarily entrails, so uh, intestines, uh, livers, lungs, uh, with various substrates added in and the digestion process stopped um, at a certain point by the addition of a strong acid, usually phosphoric acid. Now the precise um, substrates <coughs> that are added in are closely guarded trade secrets and the batches that result depend upon the, the, mix, the, the things that are mixed into it. So batches that are considered to be a bit more beefy might transform a can of miscellaneous body parts into beef stew. Uh, batches that are considered to be a bit more fishy might turn something into ocean whitefish. It may uh, have a bit less to do with the actual body parts in it and a bit more to do with the, the uh, flavour of the digest um, going into uh, the cans. Um, 
Restaurant grease is um, grease in fast food restaurants in which products are deep fried again and again. The grease is sometimes scraped off and stored in, in 44-gallon drums and then sold on as fat blenders for use in the, uh, to increase the fat content in pet foods. Fish are notorious in a couple of ways. One is the um, contaminants in fish and the second thing is the bacterial uh, uh, contamination of the fish. So, the first thing, we're talking about organic pollutants, PCBs and other things in the oceans and heavy metals such as mercury. So the organic pollutants tend to be lipophilic, they're attracted to fatty tissue. So um, fish have not evolved with these things in the oceans which are toxic for many, many thousands of years and they haven't got the mechanisms to get them out of their bodies. So they're attracted to the, the, the fat inside the fish and they stay there. Uh, bigger fish eat the little fish and um, the amount of toxins tend to concentrate higher and higher up the food chain. So you can get relatively hazardous levels of organic pollutants, the same thing with heavy metals such as mercury, uh, higher up the food chain. So that's one issue. The second issue, find out the power source, right, okay. Um, I'll probably crop up again. I'll probably need to plug in. Um, the second issue is um, bacteria. So Fish naturally produce mucus to protect them from water when they are killed and the mucus production stops and they also are dragged out of the water and into the air and their, their skin is not um, able to cope with being out of water and in the air as well as a land animal. So it tends to break down uh, a bit quicker. On top of that, the uh, supply chains are longer. So the fish are caught at sea, they go in a hold, hopefully they're chilled in some ice, but nevertheless there's still a level of degradation going on slowly. It might be days or weeks out there, and then they eventually get to shore and get processed. So this is a much longer time frame for bacterial contamination and degradation of that, of that skin. So when I was looking uh, into this, I found a study demonstrating that 40% of all uh, of fish tested have bacterial counts of more than uh, 500,000 per gram, which was the definition of spoiled. Another 30% have more than 10 million per gram, which is the definition of rotten. So that was 40 plus 30, 70% of all fish. And this was human grade fish considered fit for human consumption. The fish that goes into the animal food chain, of course, is that which has been rejected for human consumption. So um, bacterial contamination is a concern, I would say, uh, with fish. Infectious diseases, so we're talking basically about bacteria. Um, we know that a substantial proportion of all meat meals are contaminated with salmonella. There are various uh, food poisoning outbreaks uh, because of this, and <coughs> other bacteria as well. Protozoa, viruses, spongiform encephalopathies, i.e. mad cow disease, maybe some parasites, maybe worms and other systems, things like that as well. So you know, those are all the infectious diseases. Endotoxins are uh, uh, toxins produced by pathogenic bacteria uh, when their cell walls break down. Mycotoxins are the ones produced by fungi. So if we're talking about production of, say, kibble, um, which is produced in packets and sits in warehouses for prolonged periods of time, if things aren't very well controlled, that's a nice time frame for colonisation of these products by fungi. Now, some of these fungi produce uh, toxins. Uh, the famous outbreaks of the because of uh, aflatoxicosis that's produced by a certain fungus and causes liver failure in dogs, uh, resulting in death. So they've been subject <coughs> of that, unfortunately. Um, hormones and antibiotics. You know, hormones, hopefully, not uh, an issue in many countries outside of the US, where they continue to still routinely use them for growth promotion of farm animals. Uh, antibiotics, definitely an issue pretty much everywhere where intensive farming is and the stresses, uh, unhygienic conditions the animals are subject to. 
are all propped up by the widespread use of antibiotics also contributing to antibiotic drug resistance as well. So the concern is that these sorts of residues will still be in the uh, meat uh, when it goes into the food chain. So to avoid this, they need to be withheld uh, from uh, uh, animals and being slaughtered for human consumption, but not for animals being slaughtered for animal consumption. So again, potentially a concern with animals uh, being slaughtered for premium uh, pet food brands there. Preservatives, uh, some very powerful chemicals are used as preservatives have been banned uh, uh, in the European Union that will continue to be used in the US because of lobbying by food manufacturing companies. So watch out for brands, I suppose, that are imported from the US. Processing, high uh, temperatures, pressures, chemical processes tend to degrade uh, fragile um, nutrients. So we're talking about vitamins, we're talking about amino acids that might unravel, probably not minerals, they're probably fine, but the more fragile nutrients uh, can be destroyed by these processes. So people often think about taurine, cats need taurine, they get it from meat. What about the taurine on a vegetarian diet? Well, guess what? The taurine all gets destroyed by the processing, the taurine from the meat. So after the processing is finished, the manufacturers add taurine back into the product and it is synthetic taurine. Um, it's exactly the same synthetic taurine that will be added into the vegetarian pet food diets as well. <coughs> so what are the effects of all these sorts of hazardous ingredients? Well, they seem to be uh, these sorts of things cropping up in companion animals, all these sorts of diseases Often. Now, I found this um, accidentally because what I was doing was I was trying to search the academic literature to look for reports of animals that uh, became ill and had, had problems on uh, vegetarian diets. And I only found one. I found a, a vegetarian diet that was deliberately formulated to be deficient in potassium. Funnily enough, the animals maintained on that diet uh, showed signs of potassium deficiency. Amazing. Um, <coughs> accidentally, without trying, I accidentally found these studies showing that animals maintained on meat-based diets um, had all the sorts of problems I showed you in the last two slides. These were published in um, uh, Animal Rights Quarterly. They were published in journals such as Cornell Veterinarian, Journal of the American Vet Vet Medical Association, one of the world's top veterinary journals, um, Tox Journal of Toxicology and Environmental Health, Science Magazine, for goodness sakes, um, etc. So these are obviously credible studies, one would hope. So, all right, so having um, pointed out that there are potentially hazardous green ingredients in some commercial meat-based diets, let's have a look at what are the basic requirements for animal diets anyway? What do we really need? We need them to be nutritionally complete and reasonably balanced for the species and life stage for which they're intended. Um, people often confuse uh, the need for a certain set of nutrients with the need for ingredients. Nutrients and ingredients are not the same thing. Providing animals get all the nutrients that they need, there's no particular requirement for meat or anything else. There's no theoretical reason why you shouldn't be able to supply all the required nutrients from vegetable, synthetic and mineral sources. The key thing is that they get all the nutrients that they need reasonably balanced. On top of that, it needs to be palatable enough, so it be tasty, smell, have the texture, have the look that the animals will actually want to eat it. Uh, on top of that, actually bioavailable, so it's primarily digestible. It needs to be able to be digested and absorbed into the body and get to the cells and be absorbed into the cells. Now, I haven't seen detailed data on all the ingredients in vegetarian diets or meat-based diets, but I've seen some, and the digestibility is the main issue, and it's comparable between the two. It might be like 80% in meat-based ingredients, might be 70% vegetarian. There might be a slight drop. That, that's it, nothing's hungry. So, Theoretically, there ought to be no reason why you can't formulate uh, vegetarian and vegan diets to meet all these criteria in a growing range of um, 
all brands exist and then manufacturers aim to do exactly this. <coughs> now, reliable are these diets? There are some concerns, unfortunately, about these diets. The first was raised uh, by this, this authors in, these authors in 2004. They looked at a couple of these diets and they found that both were actually deficient in certain amino acids and some other vitamins and so on. One was deficient in overall protein content, important for cats because they have that higher home protein. I contacted the manufacturers and asked for their response and one of them said this, we've got 10 to 20,000 healthy long living dogs, cats and ferrets on our diet, major sanctuaries use the products, stand by them uh, and so on. Um, so basically with this particular study, I looked at the different possibilities and it seemed the most likely possibility was that a, a mixing error had actually occurred in the factory that resulted in the tested batches being deficient but uh, the, the products not normally being deficient. I thought that if they were normally deficient, if there were ten to 20,000 animals, you would expect at least a few hundred animals showing signs of nutritional deficiency. There would be enough of them to be detected, and that, that wasn't happening. Uh, the other manufacturer actually found the mixing error um, where the two particular containers that got mixed up, so that did actually turn out to be what the problem was. Um, I was concerned to see this in late 2015. This came out and they looked at 24 uh, vegetarian diets for cats and dogs in the US. And the key bit is um, the second bit of yellow, if you can see it. It says that minimum protein concentrations were basically fine in all of them, but six out of 24, one quarter, did not meet all amino acid minimums. So one quarter of these were deficient in one or more amino acids, building blocks of proteins. So that was the problem. The um, authors, though, noted this. They said in this study, they said, well, hang on, we can't conclude anything about the diets overall because these samples were collected only at one point in time from one batch of each product. The batches might vary. Substantial variation results was possible because uh, labs use different methods. And on top of that, we didn't actually test the uh, levels of the nutrients in the bloodstream of the animals. That's more important than the levels in the cans, actually. <coughs> So, nevertheless, this is a concern. Um, so what should we actually do? Well, the authors again said this. They said that all three of the veterinary prescription diets were actually nutritionally adequate and they also met all the labelling requirements for something else that they looked at. Um, and they also said that for all the animals and regardless of the diet, general routine monitoring and assessment are important. Um, this is common sense. We want to always be monitoring our animals on a regular basis, looking for any problems. And I'm going to come back to this point later on. So what I did again was I again contacted all the manufacturers in this case to get additional information and I also took the opportunity to review all of the other evidence in this field about the churn and vegan uh, diets, all of the studies, and I compiled all the results together in this review paper that came out uh, not long ago in, in this journal, Animals, um, an academic journal. And basically it seems that animals on vegetarian and vegan diets are reported to experience a range of potential health benefits and there are all these sorts of benefits here. Um, the trouble is, most of these come from uh, individual case reports, they're not population studies, so we need to be careful about concluding anything from these. Are there any actual population studies? There are, actually are now a couple. This is the first uh, large-scale study of the long-term health of vegetarian cats. Uh, in fact, almost all were actually vegan, but not all of them. Published by a colleague of mine, actually, in the journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association uh, 11 years ago now don't bother trying to interpret the table. <coughs> the key points are, this was 34 cats maintained on vegetarian, as I said, most of vegan diets for at least one year. 
on 52 cats mainly on meat-based diets for one year. Uh, there are no significant differences in the age, sex, body condition and so on. Most cats were described by their caregivers as being healthy or generally healthy. They checked a couple of the uh, blood nutrient levels and they were all fine for all cats except for three where they were a little bit low but not showing any clinical effects and those three cats were being fed partly on table scraps. Table scraps are not a nutritionally complete diet for cats. So you know, a small amount of table scraps is fine but if it's a significant proportion of the diet you're going to see nutritional effects and that's what was, was happening. What about dogs? This came out in 2009, this was in the British Journal of Nutrition and they thought well you know, what dogs uh, have the greatest nutrient demands. How about sprint racing Siberian Huskies? Um, so they looked at 12 of these dogs that were fed either a commercial diet, recommended for active dogs, or a meat-free, this one was vegetarian, not vegan, diet formulated to meet the same nutrient specs. Uh, it was their only nutrient intake for 16 weeks, including 10 weeks of competitive racing. Um, maybe the sample size was a bit low, by the way. I think they arbitrarily picked six in each group, which is a problem given what I just said in the previous presentation. Now, let's look at what the results were. It was their only nutrient intake for 16 weeks, including 10 weeks of competitive racing. You know, racing, thank you very much, five in the morning. Racing through the snow, pulling uh, heavy slates, I mean, for long distances, it's hard to think of anything more uh, nutritionally demanding than that. Blood samples were collected at regular intervals, veterinary health checks. Blood results for all dogs were within normal range. In fact, red blood cell counts went up because they're athletes responding to exercise. They're all extremely athletic. They're all in excellent physical condition. So. They're the only two population studies that have been published. It would nice, be nice to see more, but you know, the evidence that's actually out there uh, seems to indicate what common sense would tell us that providing a formulated diet which is nutritionally complete and reasonably balanced, you would expect to see the animals being fine. Um, and that seems to be what's going on. What about the issue of natural behaviour? Cats need meat, surely they're carnivores as well. Okay, cats in their natural environment would eat a variety of birds, uh, small mammals, lizards, insects. Whenever they make a kill, they probably want to gorge as much as possible to prevent consumption by a competitor. This would be followed by an uncertain period of hunger until the next kill. Let's compare a domesticated cat fed on cows, sheep, pigs, uh, fish, uh, at predictable times daily, with a whole bunch of hazardous ingredients potentially mixed in in some of these diets too. This looks nothing like a natural feeding regime for a cat. On top of this, um, we are apparently very happy to desex our cats and dogs, uh, to vaccinate them, to treat them for a whole range of internal and external parasites, to microchip them, to collar them, and to keep them indoors at night, because we quite rightly believe that all these highly unnatural things are, are necessary to safeguard their health and important for responsible pet care. So why then is there such a marked resistance to taking off a commercial diet that may be full of hazardous ingredients, putting on to one which lacks all those ingredients, which order to set up health. I think it may have something to do with um, people's need to actually justify to themselves that it's necessary to, to have um, bought all these products and hence support all the killing of the food animals, you know, all the years previously in the present, rather than a rational consideration of the facts about this issue. Um, Great, we'll see if we can get through the next few minutes. Uh, I think we've only got a couple more slides just to uh, put our, our timekeeper at ease. Uh, see him pacing anxiously there. Um, easing the transition. Um, for anyone that is interested in transitioning, I'd advise people to uh, do a couple of things. One is do it gradually. 
Uh, so you might want to mix in, you know, 10% new diet, 90% old diet. Uh, every few days, up it by another 10, 10%, change it very slowly and gradually. A variety of things we can do to increase the palatability of the strange new diet. Uh, vegetable oil, spirulina, nori flakes, gently warming food, fresh food only. Uh, you can uh, not demonstrate anything is un unusual <coughs> going on. Don't make a fuss. Um, don't be alarmed if, if your cat has been addicted to a certain type of digest for the last 10 years, carefully picks around the new food and refuses to eat it. Simply having it in close association with, with the, what it knows as being food will help make that necessary connection. Very, very gradually, patience and persistence have successfully transitioned most stubborn animals. It may take six months or more for a really stubborn animal, but you can do it. Secondarily, uh, they will suffer nutritional problems eventually if you do not make your diet is nutritionally complete and reasonably balanced. Now, as I've shown, there are concerns about some of the uh, vegetarian and vegan diets out there, but what we go into in our detailed study is that the meat-based ones have also got the same range of concerns, I'm afraid. The, um, you know, the, what's written on the tin doesn't match what's actually in uh, the meat-based diets very well nutritionally. So with all diets, just you know, don't panic. Uh, monitor your animals on a regular basis, body weight. Uh, look for coat changes, look for any vomiting, diarrhea, other health problems, blood tests at least once a year, and maybe vary the diets occasionally. Uh, don't assume your meat-based diet is perfect, the vegetarian one may not be either, unfortunately, but do make an effort to try to ensure that it's uh, nutritionally complete. Either buy a commercial one or make a homemade diet and add in the supplement, otherwise it won't be. Uh, <coughs> the final thing really is this. Uh, animals on vegetarian diets can get urine, which is a bit more alkaline. This can be a problem. It can cause crystals, uh, mineral crystals, to uh, come out, come together with little stones and block up the urinary tract. That, that's an emergency. Biggest problem is male cats, but could occur in male and female cats and dogs. So you want to monitor the urine at the start and regularly throughout transition, say weekly and then long term once a month. There are ways to collect the urine that aren't too difficult and there are ways to measure the acidity of it. Uh, there's a, a normal range that it should be and there are things you can add into the diet to change it if you need to adjust it. All that information I um, don't have time to do because I'm going to upset my, my colleague here. But it, it is on the it is on the um, the website uh, which I'll be giving you <coughs> shortly. Uh, in conclusion, you know we choose vegan diets for ourselves for these sorts of reasons: ethics, environmental health. Of course, the same benefits apply to vegan companion animal diets. These I think do provide the best choice, providing you do those things and do it safely, uh, both for your companion animals and for so-called food animals. If anyone wants to know more about this sort of things, I've got short summaries and detailed information as well, including about urinary alkalinization in mysightvegetex.info. Uh, there's detailed sections on, on different parts. Uh, there's short YouTube videos talking about different bits. There's the opinions and other bits as well. And there it all is. And I think that's the quickest I've ever given that in, so I hope that you'll have to give him a mighty big round of applause. That's so impressive. <laughs>
So we just heard from Professor Andrew Knight talking about vegan dogs and cats. And yeah, we want to give that website another plug, veggiepets.info. Lots of really great information on vegan dogs and cats. And also, if you'd like to hear more um, and yeah, find out about Next Animal Activist Forum, that kind of thing, you can go to activistforum.com. That's a really great opportunity for activists to reflect on their tactics, hear from other activists, that kind of thing. So in the last five minutes or so, uh, all three of us have had a lot of experience with vegan dogs and cats. So, yeah, we thought we'd talk a little bit more about our personal experience. We've heard a lot about the science behind vegan dogs and cats, but talk about more personal experiences with dogs and cats. So, uh, yeah, maybe, Katie, do you want to start off with anything you want to say about vegan dogs or cats? Or yeah, dogs? well, <laughs> I thought maybe a good story would be for you to talk about Delilah. Mm-hmm. The when you the, yeah, one of sure. your rescue many rescue dogs you've had over the years, I thought yeah. that was just such an amazing story when mm. I heard that. Yeah, so when I got her, she had a crushed bone in her leg, and she was also skin and bone. I think you know by her behaviour and her you know appearance, there's the you know, speculation from the vet that she'd been fending for herself rather than being fed, just like getting whatever she could out sort of in the wild, I guess. And uh, yeah, she was totally skin and bone, crushed bone in a leg. And it was after, I think about three weeks on a vegan diet, she was back on, you know, totally great weight, very healthy dog. And yeah, just... Yeah, right away. Yeah. Did the vets go, whoa, that's that's amazing? Were they surprised? Um, yeah, I mean, I think they were more, you know, the, the leg recovered really well too, which was good. But, um, yeah, I don't really remember because when I when I went up to the vet, it was more because they had to, like, tighten screws in that leg because okay, yeah. of the crushed bone in the leg. And so the focus was more on that. But, yeah, often when I do go to the vets uh, with my vegan dog, I don't mention that they're vegan at first. And then, mm. oh, they're so healthy. I can't believe how young they look. And, yeah, they're doing so well, whatever you're doing it's great and then at that point i'll mention they're vegan <laughs> then you see they're sort of backtracking and oh i can't say they're unhealthy now because i've just said they're so healthy but um yeah what, what about you adam do you want to talk a bit about uh, your experience yeah i mean we've got uh two vegan or two dogs who eat a vegan meal a uh, vegan diet and we've got two cats that also eat a vegan diet and they're all doing great they, and two humans that eat a vegan and two humans <laughs> that eat a vegan diet that's that's true two of um, everything you're like no it's <laughs> Um, yeah, and everyone everyone does really well. I find that um, adding a few bits and pieces in also helps. So we, we put a bit of um, sweet potato in with the dog's food and that helps their coat stay nice and shiny and nice and smooth. Um, but, yeah, so they all the love it. you get the pellets? Do you buy the vegan pet pellets? Yep. Or, yeah, because yep. there's a few brands now. that. And I did want to give a mention to that. So I personally buy the vegan pet generally online just because, you know, you can get it 15 kilos at a time, which is cheaper and it's harder to carry. It's easier to carry, like you don't have a car to, yeah, rather than carrying it on the tram or whatever. So veganpet.com.au is a great place online to get the vegan dog and cat food. And two other places we sometimes get it is uh, Pran Convenience in Pran and also the Cruelty Free Shop in Fitzroy. Anywhere in your neck of the woods, Adam, where they sell it? or Yeah, there's a lovely person in the local community who gets it um, wholesale from vegan pets and ships down like 25 bags at a time, 15 kilo bags, and then we buy it from buy it from them and you find them on Vegans of Geelong. No, no. It's all they're just, just your dealer. Yeah, they're just okay. the dealer. The, the vegan pet food dealer. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they have pellets that that's complete and then they also have wet food as well, don't they? The wet food's yeah, not, not complete. Not complete, so yeah. you... No. But what would you... you would, I mean, I, I yeah. feed the wet food, so 
basically uh, my dogs every single meal and they've recently been adopted and we're really happy on the vegan pet from the start and yeah basically for me the pallets are always the meal like the base for the meal so because mm. that's a complete food so every single meal they get the vegan pet pallets yep. and that is a complete food so you could just feed them that but just like us we get sick of eating the same things so i always rotate different things with that so that is sometimes a vegan pet tin food i sometimes make them some cheesy sauce out of savory savory, savory yeast flakes and um yeah flour and that kind of thing and make up a, a cheesy sauce to go with it sometimes i feed them tempeh sweet potato and, yeah sweet potato and i guess you know i i also see like if your dog doesn't like a particular vegan food doesn't mean they can't be vegan it's just a matter of like rotating and when they're not eating something as much i'll switch to something else they do eat and yeah there's definitely lots of different options of stuff to feed with it yeah. and treats yeah mm. yeah definitely yeah um and yeah i should also mention you can check out all of our episodes at freedomofspecies.org and you can also check out uh yeah old episodes via itunes as well if you miss the shows live and yeah we're going to finish up with a track which actually relates back to the population issue which we discussed uh, earlier on so yeah the song is actually about it's from an american comedy duo garfunkel and oats and the track is called frozen lullaby and it's actually a song to their ivf baby but there is yeah so it's not it's definitely not the the main theme of this uh, population but um but yeah it's definitely there are some mentions of it in there and um, stay tuned. So after we've finished, uh, Freedom F- Species finishes, uh, In Psychedelia will be on next and they'll have a great show for you to listen to. Uh, enjoy. Mommy, where do babies come from? It's pretty simple, actually. When a man doesn't love a woman very, very much, he signs away his paternal rights and jizzes in a cup. Then with lots of money and scientific genius, hormones, pain, and of course, um, Jesus. The process begins the way God intended, with a transvaginal ultrasound.